Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies, who did the heavy lifting editing this episode. You can learn more about his work at IdealVideoStrategies.com. And remember, the best way to support this show is by sharing it with others, either online or in person, though a five-star rating and review on iTunes doesn't hurt. So let folks in your Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds know that we exist, or just go wander the streets and randomly tell people about it. It's up to you. And on that note, I want to take a minute to talk about Jessica McCabe's How To ADHD channel on YouTube. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. I'll be linking to it in the show notes. While you're there, take a look at the video that she recently featured me in. It's about my wall of awful model. I'm deeply honored by it, and I would love for you to tell the world all about it if you find it useful. Finally, if you haven't joined the ADHD Essentials Facebook community yet, we'd love to have you. It's a group where you'll find support for parenting your child with ADHD and managing your own challenges. Go to facebook.com groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up. This is episode 65. Today, we're talking to Sally. Sally is a high school special education teacher who has ADHD, which means she gets her students on a level that not all teachers can. In today's episode, we talk about Sally's journey to becoming an educator, inclusion, how having ADHD has affected her teaching practice, and why her mission statement as a teacher is to help her kids redefine who they are as students and learners in a more positive light. All right, let's get rolling. I think before getting into kind of the philosophy and practice and nuts and bolts of my practice as a special education teacher, it's important for me to note how I was led to education. Yeah. Especially special education. So I think many people who get into teaching decide they're going to do it at an early age, you know, whether it's because they like kids or they were inspired by a, um, a teacher or a subject matter or somebody who really lit that passion or fire of teaching for them. And I am not that teacher. <laughs> so I originally was a music major, so I thought I was going to go into music. My special ed journey was not necessarily planned, but I kind of come to realize that throughout my teaching practice, that that is what gives me a special strength with uh, students that I teach and deal with. Is that because of the lack of planning? Is that the music major background that's giving you the strength? Where does that come from? A little bit of both. I think that, so I dropped my music major because it takes an incredible amount of discipline that I did not have when I was 19 picked up a psychology major, which more or less um, prepared me to do not a lot of practical work. (laughs) And so I found a position as a um, special education teaching aide 
and was really surprised by how much I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of that is because it's driven by the relationship between teacher and child. And most, and particularly teaching at high school level, right. uh, there's a saying in, special, or, um, in education that elementary teachers teach students and high school teachers teach content. And I found that to be incredibly true. And I think when you are a content teacher at high school level, you need to be very adept in knowing your content. But we lose that relationship mm -hmm. with the child a lot of times as being the central focus of why it is for teachers. And I think not being led to education in the same sense that a lot of other teachers were because they love that content and they just can't wait to teach Shakespeare. I came to it with more of a, let's be real. Some of the stuff that we teach is kind of boring. And that is our, not Shakespeare, never. Um, <laughs> um, but that's our challenge and our task is mm -hmm. teachers is to make the content approachable. And I think it's very difficult sometimes for people who have this love and reverence for a subject matter. Yeah. To remember that it's still about teaching kids. So this is my, I feel like what I really can bring to the profession and what I have over the years is being able to step outside of the content and the love of the content and kind of analyze what's going on with this child that he or she is not, it's not resonating with them. So it's about putting the pieces together of why it is a student isn't grasping something and I'm very fortunate to have that role within the classes I teach in. Yeah, I spent about a half a year as a special education teacher at the high school level. The only reason I didn't stay was because I didn't have a special education license. I was applying for a guidance counseling job and they actually it was a social emotional learning position. Yeah. Which is basically guidance. And they saw my ADHD expertise and said, so could you be a special education teacher? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And that was when I realized, <laughs> yeah, right. That was when I realized that schools don't understand ADHD. Yes. Because I was like, oh, you think this is a special ed thing. It's not. ADHD is totally guidance. <laughs> it's like, like, yeah, the executive function stuff matters, but it's very much an emotional thing and you don't know that. Okay, cool. Yes. Um, it helped a lot of my professional developments later. But so I did that for about a half a year and I noticed mm -hmm. sort of what you're talking about where some of the teachers and, and thankfully not really the teachers I worked with directly, but there were certainly teachers that I sort of in passing in the classroom, checking on another kid or some of my students were not in classes where I worked directly with the teachers. I just worked with the students who happened to be in the teacher's class. Sure. And some of the teachers were very clearly loved their content, but weren't recognizing the disconnect mm -hmm. so i taught at the middle school level oh bless you in but yeah i loved it i was the guy who wanted to work with sixth grade boys who had adhd <laughs> that was me um but so that's sort of the blending of the two right mm -hmm. elementary school teaching the kid high school teaching the content middle school sort of at least in my case right was i really want to teach the kid the content mm-hmm like that was what I geeked out about. I geeked out about this kid finally getting this thing that I was teaching. Yeah. And I didn't 
necessarily see that with all of the teachers I came across when I was briefly in high school. Some of them were like, I geek out about this content and I'm not necessarily geeking out about the kid getting it. 100%. And I think that that's like, those are the moments in my teaching practice that make it so worthwhile. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my God, you get this. And I get so excited and over the top. And then, you know, my students look at me like, what? is wrong with you? Why are you so excited about me getting this? (laughs) That's what I do. I think that that is one of our biggest challenges in teaching, particularly at at high school level, because our kids are all motivated by something. And I learned long ago that all kids can learn. And I think that what we tend to do sometimes um, as teachers is personalize why is it my kid or why aren't these kids getting my content or why aren't they understanding what it is I'm teaching it's very hard I think when you come to teaching with that kind of devotion for a content to remember to separate out it's really more about this student not so much about your content this is where I sort of like swoop in and (laughs) try to bridge that gap between kids who just aren't really connecting with the material in a particular way and where a regular teacher wants to like bang their head against the wall because they can't figure out how to do it any differently. I want to poke around in that a little bit because I think I hear a subtext to what you're saying and I'm totally comfortable being wrong here, (laughs) but it certainly resonates with my experience as a teacher where, and with teachers in general, where sometimes if a kid's not getting the content, Mm -hmm a teacher will almost take that personally. Like the kid's not getting it on purpose or something or not doing the homework on purpose or not studying on purpose. Absolutely. And I think that it's, I only really have public school teaching experience. Um, I started out in a collaborative and special education, um, but we are housed in a public school setting. So teachers are just, they have so much to cover, particularly when it comes to heavy duty content subjects. And I think that it's this overwhelming need to cover the material, make sure kids are getting the skills, worried about their evaluations from their department heads or their supervisors. You know, it's exposing them. One of the the subjects I co-teach in is history, and it's so heavy in primary source analysis, which I definitely believe in. But at the same time, I think that there's this disconnect for teachers, and they're so caught up in the mindset of, have to cover this, have to cover this, have to cover this. Why aren't you getting it? It's not because of anything I'm doing. Why aren't you getting this? I'm covering it the best I can. And I think that it's hard to not take it out on kids sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and because teachers are well-intentioned. They are there because they like teaching and they like teaching their material. And it's easy to teach kids who na- bring a natural like motivation and high interest level. That's not the real challenge. It's making it palatable and approachable for the kids who might not bring that natural love of history or English or math or what have you to the classroom. And also it's not the fault of teachers. Mm -hmm. They have so much to cover. Yes. Right. Like the national standards and most state standards are too densely packed. You can't teach all of the stuff that you're expected to teach in most subjects. Right. And that creates a level of pressure that, Pressure tends to roll downhill. So the principal starts with it and then it goes to the teachers and eventually it gets to the students. (laughs) Right. 
And I think that that just leads to such a uh, negative reinforcement type of cycle where kids are not feeling understood and they're feeling frustrated and they're bringing so much in with them every day. And in my high school, we have seven classes that the kids go to, three minutes of passing time. And as soon as the kid walks into the classroom, you know, here we are as teachers being like, okay, sit down, let's do this, get out your notebooks, get, you know, take out your iPads, whatever it is that's going on that lesson. And it's like, we don't really know what it is they're coming in with every day. And we expect them to make that mental shift really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is an unnecessary pressure that we're putting on a lot of our students. But it comes out of a place of, it's a, I think it's a well-intentioned place that it comes from for teachers and administrators. Right. Because we have a job to do and we take our jobs very seriously. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, and when you say that we don't know what they're coming in with each day, I'm assuming that you're referring to, we don't know what's going on at home. We don't know if there's a sick grandparent or if mom and dad are in an Mm -hmm. abusive relationship or if the kid's in an abusive relationship, particularly at high school. Hmm. We don't know what the the romantic or not so romantic lives of these kids are like and if there's some abuse Mm -hmm. going on there just or even just socially in terms of friendships. And what kind of stresses and anxieties they're experiencing. Maybe, maybe everything is going pretty well, but right. they had to get a job mm-hmm. because there's not enough money at home. And yeah. now this kid's got to have that job and that's suddenly more taxing. So how, how do you help your kids navigate that? Is that something that you do as a special education teacher? Are you sending that to guidance? What does that look like? Once you hand over your students to an administrator or to a guidance counselor because they're dealing with something emotionally in class, you sort of give up your power as a teacher to be able to manage that within the classroom setting. Mm -hmm. And I send very, very few kids to administration or to guidance, honestly, because I would rather have it be handled or managed within our class environment so they feel safe and so they feel they are able to continue on with learning. Mm -hmm. Because that's our ultimate goal. It's not to send them out of the classroom. It's to keep them in class so that they can learn and achieve and develop an appreciation and uh, esteem with what we're teaching them. So I try to handle a lot of that, those emotional needs for kids or, you know, my goodness, especially dealing with kids who have ADHD, um, which I have myself. So I completely and totally understand where they're coming from. They, depending on what time of day we have them in class, they might be sleepy. Yep. You know, they might have been up until two in the morning talking with their friends or playing video games. And that's how they're wired. That's how I'm wired. You know, we could do a whole other podcast on whether or not people with ADHD should go into teaching as a profession. Because I mean, early mornings, lots of paperwork. I'm like, <laughs> Sally, what were you thinking getting into this stuff? Um, but, you know, that aside, I try to use my own knowledge and my own work around it to try to help kids just be with me present in the moment for whatever's going on with them in the classroom. You know, if I have a kid who's falling asleep, mm-hmm. I'll just kind of go over and, you know, maybe touch them on the shoulder, just kneel next to them and be like, you know, are you tired today? Didn't get a lot of sleep last night or, and usually kids are really receptive to that if they know that you care about them 
first. Right. Rather than why are you sleeping in my class and why aren't you taking notes right now? Um, and it took me a long time as a teacher to be able to get to that point where I could recognize that in my students. Mm-hmm. That subtle distinction between whether you're targeting the kid or the subject really matters. Yes. Right. And I don't know that I said that very well, but, but the distinction between this kid is falling asleep in my class. Mm-hmm. Am I concerned about my kid? Am I concerned about the student or am I concerned about the fact that my subject matter is not going into their head? Right. Mm-hmm. It's important that you're starting with the kid. Yes. It's very important. Why else are we there? <laughs> I guess. Right. I know. I understand. You know, teachers are overwhelmed. We've got a lot of stuff going on. It's like, can you just get in here and get seated and get ready to learn? And I think it's, takes a lot of time and practice in learning how to really depersonalize mm-hmm. to recognize that we have to take those two to three extra minutes to really sit with our kids and to know what's going on with them first before we can ask them to get up and to start participating. Right. And that's, this is specifically your special education kids. Yes. That you're, that you're kind of aiming at. Right. Right. And I want to circle back real quick to your, your, professor who said anytime you refer a kid out you're losing your power with that with that kid yes i really hope that's not true like i really hope that's not true because as a guy who's a trained guidance counselor right right Mm -hmm. i mean my background is educate like masters in education i was an english teacher i'm a licensed guidance counselor masters in school counseling i've done the special ed stuff too and right now i'm a principal yeah. So <laughs> all of the things. Thank you. Um, all of the things. It's, it's a temporary gig. In a perfect world, mm-hmm. right? And I recognize not all schools are perfect. Mm-hmm. But in a perfect world, I would hope that if a teacher refers a student to guidance, mm-hmm. that that doesn't mean that teacher is losing any control mm-hmm. or power or influence mm-hmm. with regard to that kid. That they're really just getting more. Because now... Guidance knows that the special education teacher is aware of some challenges that this kid has. Guidance invariably knows more than you know. (laughs) Yes, they do. Especially for the kids that are struggling, right? If the kids that are struggling, guidance knows more. And so maybe there is stuff going on at home that that kid is not going to tell you. Because, hey, if I tell you this, then you're going to file. Yeah. And now DCF is involved. Right. (laughs) Right. But guidance might already know. Because they filed last week or last month or last year, so they know that this is a thing. Mm-hmm. And now we can have a communication around, look, this is what's up. Mm-hmm. Dad lost his job right. or mom is an alcoholic or whatever mm-hmm. is happening, right? Here's mm-hmm. some subtext and some, some background information to the challenges of this kid falling asleep in school. Mm-hmm. And so now that you have that information, we can move forward. So I... It might be worth it to handle some of the stuff in tandem with guidance, like as a team, not in terms of I'm just going to here, have this thing, right? <laughs> like, here's this, yeah. take this kid over and figure it out. Like, that's not what I'm thinking when I say refer to guidance. Sure. Right? And when I was special ed and admittedly being a guidance counselor, I had a different level of like, no, no, no I'm totally going to butt in because mm-hmm. I can, like, right. <laughs> you're not going to be doing anything I'm not trained to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I really think that, that in a perfect world, 
everyone's on the same team and we're all sharing information. If and confidentiality drives me crazy. I understand. Yeah. Because it's important, it matters. But if you're a teacher who works with that kid, yeah, then you need to know that stuff. Yeah. And guidance shouldn't be hiding behind a wall of confidentiality and not letting you know. Absolutely. But that it depends on the school. Some schools they do and some schools they don't. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I don't know. I just was think I was thinking about that kid falling asleep, and I'm like, what does guidance know that you maybe don't know because guidance is not thinking to tell you or hiding behind that confidentiality wall. And I should clarify that um, I believe in in practice as much as I can um, collaboration between. I mean, it's it's called mm-hmm. an IEP team, or it's, and that for right. a reason, we need each other. We depend on each other's backgrounds and information and expertise and perspective. And I'm constantly in communication with our guidance team and other regular teachers and special education teachers who deal with the same group of children that I do. Mm -hmm. In terms of asking a child to go someplace else, you know, if they're having a rough morning, that is where I try to be very deliberate about where it is I'm taking the child to. So if we need to go to guidance to discuss with their guidance counselor um, what happened, then 100%, you know, absolutely, you can let me just mm-hmm. G-chat your counselor, make sure that, you know, he or she is available. But when it comes to things that could potentially fall into uh, disciplinary issues, that's where I get very, very careful about whether or not I refer it to an administrator or whether or not I try to manage it with the student. Mm-hmm one-on-one as much as I can within the class environment, if that makes more sense. That does, right. And I imagine also you've got situations where you're like, this kid is experiencing a ton of anxiety. Mm-hmm. I can talk them down and keep them in class, Yes. but I'm still going to tell guidance or I'm yes. still going to have the kid tell guidance. Yes. So in terms of, I guess, inclusion, yes. right? Because that's kind of what we're talking about here is it the is. kids are in class despite whatever challenges they right. have academically, emotionally, et cetera. I don't think I've addressed inclusion on this podcast yet. No kidding. Could you walk us through what that is a little bit? I think it's come up in pieces and it's been implied in things, mm-hmm. but I don't think we've ever really talked about what inclusion means as a philosophy in teaching. So could you walk us through that a little? Sure. So the goal of inclusion is to provide students who have been identified as having a learning disability. Uh, specifically in those folks who are on IEPs, to provide them access to the regular education setting and to be educated with their, you know, quote unquote, non-disabled peers in a college prep environment at the high school level. That's how we consider it. So the classes that I teach in, I co-teach in, are English and history. And they're large classes. I mean, large, depending on the district. I know there are some districts that deal with classes. This is over 30, which is just so untenable. But most of the classes that I co-teach in are anywhere from 20 to 26 kids. Mm-hmm. And so part of my job as a special education teacher is to present myself as more of a regular education teacher so that all students see me as an equal player mm-hmm. um, in terms of knowledge and you know having a sense of authority in the classroom 
but it's also so that the kids who are on IEPs are not singled out by me on a regular basis because that would go counter to what we want inclusion to be. So it's a little bit of a dance of trying to ensure that the kids who are on IEPs get what they need from me in terms of accommodations and modifications while also helping them to access the curriculum at a similar level to their regular peers. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, I think the, I think the metaphor I like best for inclusion and, and what you do is the idea that whenever possible, we want to help these kids without shining a spotlight on them. So if we can just make the whole room a little bit brighter and yeah. let everybody benefit from that, then let's do that and let's limit how much spotlight stuff yeah. we have to do. Right. I am very fortunate um, in that I work with two regular co-teachers, one in history and one in English, who are just phenomenal, highly trained women. And they're very much on board with inclusion and co-teaching. And you know, we, we mix it up as much as we can as far as doing small groups and station teaching and alternative teaching and um, keeping the kids sort of, I think most students probably know that I'm a special education teacher, uh-huh. but I don't feel as though that impacts the way that they feel about me or treat me. I know, or she's just there. Miss Deliano is just there to deal with these particular kids because I make a conscious effort to really check in with all of my students. So you've mentioned that you have ADHD. How does that impact your teaching practice? How does that impact doing the job, both philosophically, like in your, in terms of your approach and also just literally doing it. Like you mentioned the paperwork, you mentioned getting up early and that kind of stuff. And how does it influence your work with kids in terms of your approach? It's important for me to mention that I was diagnosed as an adult. So I had already been a special education teacher for a good amount of time before I was properly diagnosed with ADHD. And I think that that speaks to just how um, deceptive ADHD can look sometimes. It takes on such, and I don't mean that in a, and, you know, deceptive is in a negative sense, um, but it's a little sneaky and we cannot just take one particular profile of what an ADHD student or student with ADHD is supposed to look like and use that as this model, or to speak in for which all of their students should fall under. It was a bit of a shock to me when um, I was diagnosed, but at the same time, it was like a light bulb had gone on. How did I miss this? Of course I do. Since my diagnosis, I spent a lot of time hyper-focusing on what it means <laughs> to have ADHD and uh, reading so much about it, and I understand my condition so much better. That's also allowed me to really see my students who have ADHD or other comorbid conditions. I get them on a different level than I did before. I approach my students now from a place of compassion and empathy before I even get into study skills and habits and organizational strategies and backpack cleanouts. You know, I mean, it's, you can kind of sense a child with 
ADHD a mile away now because they bring their entire bedroom with them to class and just kind of spread out all around their desks. Like, oh, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Yep. But I understand from having to really hide it for myself for years, even though I wasn't consciously aware that that's what I was doing, just how much those negative beliefs and all that negative self-talk becomes an ingrained part of who you are, of who I became an ingrained part of who I am. And so much of my time has been spent since my diagnosis of trying to sort out, bring awareness to those thoughts and to realize, you know, you don't have to keep calling yourself stupid. This is an honest mistake. You can't help this. Right. And so I notice a lot of my students, particularly as they become teenagers, so many of those thoughts are already in there. They're already ingrained and they hear them make those comments about themselves, you know, oh, I'm just lazy. Oh, I wasn't thinking, oh my God, that was so dumb. And I stop them as soon as that comes out and will say, I don't think that was because it was a stupid mistake. I don't think it was, you know, because you're lazy at all. I think that this is a condition that you can't help because you're born with it and it's hard for you. And it's hard for me too. Yeah. You don't happen to have asthma, do you? I don't, but I remember your asthma analogy <laughs> from your talk. Give that to your kids. It's awesome. Yes. Like it's, we don't call it dumb lung. We just call it asthma, you know? Like yes. <laughs> sometimes you have trouble breathing because you have asthma. Sometimes you forget a date or leave a homework assignment at home because you have ADHD. It's just the way it goes. Right. Yes. And, and the wall of awful, which is what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Fourth grade is when that mm. starts to get cemented in. And, and it's not necessarily wow. huge at fourth grade, but that's when it starts to matter, when you start to actually have to get past it. And that, admittedly, that's sort of a general idea. It's not based on studies or anything. It's just my, in my experience and in talking to lots of teachers. But fourth grade is when kids start to struggle in school. That's when those self-defeating thoughts start to creep in. And by the time they get to you, they've got another four or five years of doing that. And it's heartbreaking to me. I, I will be honest. I went through probably this past September. My son started kindergarten. Cool. And he's, oh, he's awesome. And he loves school. And learning is so much fun. And he comes home with all this good, Mama, did you know this? And it's so beautiful to see him in that part of his education. And I did a real number on my psyche to see my son in kindergarten loving school so much. And then going into my job as a teacher at high school level and seeing all these students who I'm pretty sure had that at some point in time. And there are a lot of reasons why that changes as well. I know, you know, but then to see them at this point in time in their education where they don't have that same sort of like motivation and spark for learning. And I feel like a lot of my work now as the teacher is to try to help them access that in themselves to try to get through all of those negative beliefs and get to the core of like, so you are interested in this. You know, I knew that was in there somewhere and helping them redefine who they are as students and learners. That, that's awesome. That, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of a better mission statement for a teacher to have. Oh, thank you. It's tough. <laughs> it's taking time. And <laughs> as you said, there's the whole other management piece of, uh, grading, which I don't do as much of as my regular education teacher colleagues do. Mm -hmm. But there's the 
legal paperwork involved with special ed, you know, lots of IEPs, a lot of writing, a lot of testing, a lot of progress reports. It's tough to manage all that. Yeah. I remember writing IEPs and it, it was terrible. <laughs> I would, I would be in school till like six, six thirty at night, just doing IEP trying to make sure I got them all done. And, and that was not a fun experience. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's because they're supposed to, it's the I and IEP is individualized, right? Right. <laughs> so it's supposed to be individualized. And that means really getting to know your student really well and knowing the family. And it's a whole other experience mm-hmm. of working as a team. So just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you would like to share with our audience? Yes. I think for all teachers, I can speak more so to those of us in special education. And it can be a field of high burnout and because it's, it's a tough job to sustain. How long have you been doing it? I have been in special education for 19 years now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> a wow. long time. <laughs> so you have not burned out, I guess. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely love working with my students and that's what gives me energy and anytime I think about like moving on to another field or something you know kind of parallel to it it's like that I wouldn't have that time in the classroom with my students and that would be hard I think that in order to make it sustainable for us to stay working as educators um I think the core of it is self-care and we don't talk about that enough for teachers Mm -hmm. I think one of the ways I've been able to maintain in this field is I've worked incredibly hard for balance. I get regular therapy I have for a decade. I meditate daily, sometimes twice a day. I go to yoga. I have an incredible husband and son and wonderful friends. And I've been fortunate. Um, But that takes a lot of work and management. And I think that we talk a lot in special ed about if I'm sitting around a table at an IEP meeting with all these different professionals who are all invested in this child and we're talking to the parents about how it is they need to take care of themselves and how they need to seek counseling for their child and how it is, you know, have you tried mindfulness techniques or tactics? You know, we'll talk all about that. But I'm curious to know if you pulled the table, how many professionals are actually doing that for themselves. And I think to really, truly understand what it is our students are going through we have to invest that time in our own mental health and our own self-care. And until we do, teachers will continue to burn out and leave the profession. And that's too bad because I've seen so many gifted and talented teachers leave over the years because it's a tough job. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.